Hello, and welcome to Talking and Chill, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And Zahava Stadler is joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, ladies. This month, our first topic is the rabbinic pipeline. We're talking to Rabbi Leora Kling Perkins about her experiences becoming a rabbi at Temple Amuna in Lexington, Massachusetts, and going through the process to get a job as a pulpit rabbi, and about our own experiences being on the other end of the rabbi search process. For our second segment, we're going to be talking about Holocaust comparisons. When, if ever, can and should we invoke the Holocaust in reflecting on current events? So Mimi, I know that you are going to kick us off for our first segment. Yeah. Um, so we are so excited to be joined by Rabbi Leora Kling Perkins. Um, and Leora, you you told us that this is that you were um, ordained in May. So we know that you're sort of newly through this job search process. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through what's the process, what's the timeline for getting a job on a pulpit? What does that look like for a new graduate? First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm excited to be talking to you about this. Uh, So I am a conservative rabbi. I went to JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. Um, And so in the conservative movement, there is a placement service as each of the other denominations also have their own placement services for rabbis. And as a um, as a graduating senior, um, we have a slightly different process from rabbis who are already in the field, uh, which can be very nice um, since it's obviously a different kind of experience to be getting your first rabbinic job. Uh, so basically, uh, congregations started posting in the fall who were looking for new rabbis. Basically, congregations start posting who they're looking for in the fall. We get access to look for a few months before we're actually able to apply for those jobs. And then all the all of the rabbis who are graduating that year from the conservative movement, whether in New York City at JTS or from California, from the Ziegler Rabbinical School, we all come together, um, those of us who choose to, in a an interview week. So this year it was in California at the Ziegler School. And everyone who was participating in placement went there and we all get to sign up for whatever interviews we want, which is a really special thing about this process. During that week, we all had a bunch of interviews. Um, I would say most people had probably between six and 10 interviews, something like that. And in that's like Monday through Thursday, that Sunday night, congregations can make phone calls to invite people to come for a weekend to interview. And then on a designated day and time, congregations are able to make job offers. So it's actually a very fixed time process, which I think on the one hand can create some anxiety because you know it's all happening and it's all at once and there's interviews going on all the time. And on the other hand, it actually is quite a gift to be able to have a fixed timeline and to have some sense of when one can expect answers, uh, etc. So by the end of March, uh, I, I think my class from JTS was very lucky. By the end of March, all of us had a job. 
um, and we're able to begin preparing for what's next. And I do want to add, uh, this is really primarily for pulpit jobs. So I have classmates who are doing chaplaincy work. I had classmates who were looking at Hillel jobs and all sorts of other jobs. And while the conservative movement tries to integrate that into our placement service, the truth is that those employers aren't bound by our timeline and by our process. And so they're also posting all over the place and they are accepting candidates on their own timelines. So at the interview week in California, there were a few non-pulpit jobs that interviewed candidates, but primarily the placement service ends up being for congregations who are required to participate in that process if they want to get a rabbi. And so does that mean that there are particular pulpit jobs that are geared towards new graduates and other jobs that are geared towards people who maybe have been working in Hillel and then want to transition or just are looking for a new community? So the way it works is that as new graduates, we're able to apply for pulpit jobs as assistants or as a solo rabbi of a small congregation. So the conservative movement divides up congregations by size. And so we can apply for congregations under 250 families or so. So those are the only jobs that we can apply for. Some rabbis in the field are going to be looking at those jobs too, but many of those synagogues that are looking for people know that uh, that they might be interested in new rabbis, that new rabbis might be kind of the greatest number of rabbis who are interested in those jobs. And so those are, those are the ones who come to interview week. And sometimes you'll have a congregation with a job that technically could be for a new graduate, but they want someone with more experience. And so they're going to go a different route and might not come to that interview week. So you mentioned that um, most candidates have six to 10 interviews that they can sign up for whichever interviews they're interested in doing. How many possible interviews are there? Are there like 15 congregations looking for rabbis, 50, 150? What are we looking at? At interview week, there were somewhere between, it was somewhere around two dozen, somewhere between 20 and 30. So it was a good number. Uh, I would say that there were certainly some that were more popular than others. And a lot of that had to do with geography, but there was, a, there was a good number to choose from. And given that my class has 13 rabbis who were ordained together and that the Ziegler class from California had 14 and not everyone was entering placement, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad. I would say there, there were some people who went through that process who took a while to get a job. But I feel lucky that at least among my classmates at GTS, people got jobs through the general timeline of that process, which was really lucky. Uh, so the ratios weren't, weren't bad this year. I was recently talking with a rabbi in the reform movement about this particular moment in time. Um, and what he was saying is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people entered rabbinical school in the 60s and 70s because they were baby boomers and some of them were drafting the Vietnam, uh, were dodging the the draft for Vietnam. And so we had this like massive influx of of rabbis during that time. And now, of course, what's happening with baby boomers across a lot of fields is that they're retiring. So do does it seem like there's a, a shift happening, that there are a lot of retirements and a lot of new positions opening up? 
or has that not really trickled down to the assistant rabbi level yet? You know, it's hard to say because the jobs that my classmates and I were applying for were not jobs that were being vacated by baby boomers. Right. So we were applying for assistant jobs where the previous person went on to some other job and they're not that much older than we are. And the solo positions also was not a lot of retirements that we were seeing. So it wasn't something that I as a new rabbi was experiencing. I would say people in the field may have experienced that, but that wasn't something I encountered personally. I'm really curious about the contents of those interview weekends. So I've been on the community side of those rabbinic tryouts in the modern Orthodox world, at least. Um, In the Orthodox world, for whatever reason, these tend to be referred to in Yiddish as a preba. I don't know if that translates to other denominations ever. Um, So, um, but... I think that as a community member, you see the rabbinic candidate doing things like giving the Saturday morning sermon or giving an afternoon uh, Torah class or things of that nature, but they're all very much the public-facing parts of the rabbinic job, but there's so much in the job of a rabbi that is not just person addressing congregation in various capacities. And so I'm wondering, how are these weekends structured maybe in ways that the the big mass of the congregation doesn't see um, that they're interviewing you for the full range of what a rabbinic job entails? Or are they? They do a lot of it. You know, every synagogue really structured it differently. It was so interesting. There were some common elements. So most places had been give some sort of Torah and or some sort of teaching opportunity. Um, most of them had different groups in the community that I got to see. But some communities had these open Q&A periods. Some didn't. Some communities had a former, formal interview with the search committee. Not everyone did. Uh, in... Many of them I got to visit the religious school and maybe have a schmooze with the religious school families. And in some of them, you know, I just, there were, there were all these different opportunities. I got to read to preschool kids. So a lot of them were really mindful of the different ways that I might interact and the different groups within the community that I might interact with. I, um, in one of the interviews that I had, had with a search committee, they actually did a role play. So somebody came up and pretended to be a person in distress coming to the rabbi for support. So uh, it, it was really neat to see how people thought about it. You know, in one community, they had a structured interview with me, so they didn't want to do an open Q&A. They did something uh, more scripted, but public so that everyone could see and could get to have a sense of me. And in some communities, they had people accompanying me during Kiddush to help me make sure I got to go around to all the tables. So, I, you know, it's crazy. It's this super intense time, right? You come in for two days or a day and a half, and it's just, it's very intense. But hopefully, you get to really know these communities. And I certainly feel like I have a, at least a sense of the people, of the kinds of programs, the kinds of dynamics, and, and they of me. So I'm curious a little bit about the denominational breakdown of things. I mean, clearly we know that there are congregations out there that aren't affiliated with a particular movement. There are rabbinical schools that are not affiliated with a particular movement. So what do those congregations do? What do those students 
with Smicha do when they're out on the search? So do you know? So I don't know as much. It's certainly not as structured of a process. Obviously, people who are coming from a school that's not affiliated and synagogues that aren't affiliated are going to be certainly potential matches for each other. The way it works with our process is that both for candidates and for congregations, if they go through the process and they don't find the right fit, then they can start looking more broadly. So it's not the first stop, but it is something that people can do. Got it. Yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the um, the kind of role-playing role that one the one synagogue asked and just kind of like to what extent do you feel like synagogues are able to ask you about those skills? I mean, having just gone recently through an interview process, I think a lot about how like what does it mean to have someone ask questions about certain skills and to what extent can you actually evaluate those skills without seeing them in practice? And particularly as a rabbi, I feel like it's the kind of thing where it's like, it seems like something that would be hard to evaluate without experiencing it. So I'm curious, like what you felt about that process. And if you felt like there was something that you wish more congregations would have done or that you felt like didn't get tapped in that process through, you know, something that you worked on in your training that didn't really get hit on in your interviews. Yeah, there's only so much that you can really get to know about anyone in a few days. Yeah, but. I, I do think the I mean the role play was fun and frankly it felt very much like something that I've done in a class where we were training to do pastoral work. So role plays are actually really effective for that. Obviously it's not gonna feel exactly the same, but it's mm-hmm. a great way to get a sense of how someone relates. And so much of this is about feeling comfortable with the person and seeing the kinds of responses they have and the way that they're able to be attuned to you. So I I do think that I was able to demonstrate some amount of what I've learned and what I've practiced doing. And, and also I, you know, I think some of it is really just about so much of it is about the fit, right? It's not about the best candidate. It's about the best candidate for the community and vice versa. And something that I think was really amazing was that at least among my class, there was so little overlap in what people's first choices were. And I think it means that we're all really different people and we have different things to offer. And we we're looking for things that are different. And even though the jobs may seem similar, actually every community is, is really its own, uh, its own entity. And, you know, there's a lot of comparisons that go on uh, throughout the process that we make with each other. And, you know, it comes up in conversation uh, between this process and dating because it it really is like dating. You're looking for the right fit and someone could be amazing and they're not the right fit for you. So I feel, I feel really, really lucky. I think the fact that we all are many of us lo- were looking for something different it it means that we were able we were able to find the fit that was right for us that actually dovetails with something that i was thinking of as you were describing the many different weekends you know that you had something every weekend for a while and i'm wondering do you feel like this process gave you a different perspective on what's happening in conservative judaism right now 
like you had this survey. It was really great, actually. I mean, first, reading all of these questionnaires. Uh, I don't think I really talked about that, but the initial step is reading these questionnaires that the congregations fill out, and they are pages and pages and pages. These are like two dozen pages long of answering questions about their community and about what they're looking for and their community's history and their community's demographics and program. Like, it's very extensive. And you see what are people anxious about. You see so much really comes out through that. And then through the interviews and through the visits, uh, it, it's fascinating and I think actually really important to get a sense of what's going on in the movement and what's going on in different kinds of Jewish communities because there's there's really a big range. So I, I, I really enjoyed that. Speaking about the range of communities, I mean, did you feel, was JTS and maybe the Ziegler School to whatever your knowledge of that school is, yeah. were they sensitive to... Obviously, there are smaller shuls not on not in the coasts, not in big cities. Um, and how do we? How does the movement get rabbis out to those places that might need another that might need a, a young rabbi or new presence? So, you're right in picking up on that. I had mentioned before that there was a real difference between communities of how many people were applying and a lot of it had to do with location. And there were some synagogues that didn't get applicants or got one or a couple of applicants. And it's hard because a lot of people who want to become rabbis really want to live in significantly sized Jewish communities where it's easy to get kosher food and where there's other Jews to share all sorts of different kinds of experiences with. And it's hard. It's harder for those communities. And I think I've heard sometimes they can take a few years of attempting until they find the right fit. And and when they do, it's, you know, it's a special thing because that person really wants to be there, hopefully. I think you're right that it's a challenge. Uh, I know that some of the, there were some synagogues that came that had already booked their tickets and they didn't have anyone. And they actually met with different administrators from the, from the schools. So I think we're offering them some support and some ideas. There's definitely something to be said for working with communities that really have to be active about creating their Jewish communities. And I had some experience with that last summer. I worked with the center for small town Jewish life in Maine, and it takes work to be Jewish in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And it was really exciting to be involved in those communities. And so I think to the extent that that's that's an organization that has been bringing in rabbinical students to do fellowships. They have a summer program and they have a year program. And I think to the extent that students can have that kinds of experiences during the year, that's helpful in envisioning what it could be like to live in that kind of place. And also to also, it helps those places because maybe they can't afford a, uh, or maybe they can't find a rabbi, or maybe they, you know, they can't necessarily afford a full-time rabbi or need a full-time rabbi, but they can have some someone part-time. So there's lots of other options that aren't just having the, having the rabbi. I'm curious, I recognize that you're in a specific situation right now, and I don't want to put you in a situation that's uncomfortable. I'm curious if you felt like any of the the way that the um, interviews were set up or 
anything about the interview process felt really gendered to you. I know that a few years ago, there was a whole process around um, making sure that nursing parents had time to nurse during the interview process, that that was like something that needed to be arranged. And I know that still there are many communities that really think of a rabbi as like a a man with a beard. Um, And so I'm curious, like, what, if anything, do you think of the process as still kind of gendered or something that you felt like you were kind of pushing against? So it's funny because I I feel like it's an it's an obvious question and it's not necessarily so easy to answer. It's fair. Uh, As I said before, when we were talking about the like, you know, what's it like to have my spouse go through it? Well, you know, there's dynamics, but sometimes you wonder about things and it's hard to tell. And frankly, I don't think that um, there were only actually from JTS, there were actually only two women going through the process for various reasons. Um, Other people had jobs through other venues, et cetera. Um, And, you know, just flukes mostly. Um, And I don't think either of us had any trouble in the interview process. I think we're both very aware of being women. And I think, you know, how how could we not, especially in this day and age? And also, I think that there were a lot of places that were excited about that. And I've had many people in various jobs that I've had, both as a student and in application process. I've had a number of people say, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you're a woman. And you know, and it's not personal, right? It's because I'm I'm representing something to them, and on the one hand, I don't I don't want a job because I'm a woman any more than I think that a man should get a job because he's a man, but also I think people are recognizing the value of having women in leadership. So I, I don't think either of us was hired because we're women. I think it was because of the fit, but I I actually think that it's it's not as simple a dynamic as all of the stuff that we are used to hearing about, uh, you know, people perceive women's leadership differently. And it's not, it's not just that. There's also, I think, a pleasure that some people have in finally seeing women in that role when they might not have. Um, And it varies. You know, some of it's about geography. Some of it's about happenstance of who's been in a community before. There was one person in one community who said to me, you know, it's still really new for women to be rabbis. What's that been like for you? And my answer was, you know, for me, that's not my experience. And that hasn't been the experience of the communities that I've worked in. I've had a number of jobs over the course of my time in rabbinical school. And I've worked with a lot of female mentors. And many of the synagogues that I've been at and the different kinds of jobs I've been at have had other experience with women leaders. Not not all of them, but many of them had. And I frankly feel so grateful to be living at a time when that's true, uh, that women have been rabbis in the conservative movement for over 35 years and in the reform and reconstructionist movements for even longer. And it means that I'm not really a trailblazer any more than women in other professions who also deal with the de- general dynamics of being women. So it's a, it's a really interesting time. And frankly, I think that all of the attention that women's leadership has been getting in the past year, I think it hasn't been bad for women in leadership to have that kind of attention um, played on it. I, I think there are at least some people who really feel called to 
examine their assumptions. Yeah, it's interesting. I thought a lot. <clears throat> I thought a lot this year about how I think what we ask of, not in every community, but in some communities, what we ask about rabbis is like really extraordinary. Like we ask that they just do an incredible amount. And that like, I actually feel like women in many cases are trained to do that from when they're small children. Like we ask women to, from the time that they're little, to do a lot. And that actually men may need to kind of grow their skill set through rabbinical school because they may be asked to do things that they've never been asked to do, like maybe have nurturing conversations, which is something that we historically just don't really train men to do, honestly. But we do train women to do it. Um, and I think, I don't know, I've just thought a lot about how um, we think it's very common for people to think of rabbis as a as a male thing, but actually the skills that we often are looking for that communities are often looking for in a rabbi are skills that women have been trained to do since they were children um, and that men may not have been trained to do since they were young. I think it's very true. And that that is, in a way, it's kind of a double-edged sword for women and for men, that, like, women are being tested on this thing that, like, on the one hand, they've been socialized to do. On the other hand, they've probably never really been given formal training on it. And for men, it's like they've never been socialized to do it. Maybe they've gotten some social training for it or some formal training on it. But like nobody's been expecting it of them since they were children. And so they might be less practiced at it. Um, but like having a beard might work in their favor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I do want to say we all get that training in rabbinical school. Right. I think some people might. It might come more naturally to some people than other, but uh, that is that is something that is a, a significant part of our training. I I learned so much from my chaplaincy training from being in from being in school, and I know I know a lot of my classmates did too. But but I think you're pointing out something real. You mentioned earlier that this process is is co-facilitated by JTS and by the Ziegler School, and that raised for me the fact that there are kind of two big rabbinical schools in conservative Judaism in the United States that um, also in Reform Judaism and Reconstructionist Judaism, also in modern Orthodoxy, there's like a very limited number. There's a lot of centralization of rabbinic education. Um, and I'm sure that affects your experience on the candidate side. I'm also curious how it um, affects things on the shul side, right? If the synagogues are um, basically they have access to candidates from a very specific literal school, but also from a school, like a school of thought, like a perspective, a background, a training, you know, it's, it's a very uh, centralized thing. Um, and that, that really shoehorns the, the communities in terms of what they can be looking for. So, you know, it, I'm, I'm interested in how this dynamic of, of concentration of rabbinic education is affecting these matchups. The truth is, there aren't that many Jewish communities out there or rabbis out there, right? Still, the numbers we're talking about aren't that huge. Uh, so, you know, it's true. The number is limited. And, um, you know, I think one of one of the things is I, I would hope that congregations that affiliate with a particular movement do so because they have something in common with that movement, Right. Um, ideally, they have a lot of ideological overlap and there's and hopefully that there's a fit there. Right. And that 
hopefully the schools that are affiliated with movements are training rabbis who are going to meet the needs of the synagogues that are affiliating with those movements. So, you know, that's what you hope. I think the that match is never going to be 100%. Um, and I would also say that there is certainly a diversity among the people who go even to any one school. So while the training is going to be a certain training that people get from a school, at JTS, we all pick a master's degree. And so we all get to specialize in something different and unique to us. Uh, so what you're saying is, you know, it's a factor. Um, I do also want to note, it's actually not the schools, even though it may feel like it um, as we go through the process, it's actually not the schools that are directly facilitating the process. It's the rabbinical assembly, which is the association association of rabbis for the conservative movement. And so even though JTS and Ziegler are separate schools, uh, we have... We all will be, we all now belong to a common rabbinic organization. Um, and so even though we get maybe slightly different training at the different schools, we still have, again, this this link through the movement. and 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 being part of a movement also means that there's a certain vetting process that hopefully goes on and a certain set of standards that you know that if you hire a rabbi from the conservative movement, you're gonna get someone who hopefully has, experience training in X, Y, and Z areas, which if you hire someone who maybe, you know, was self-trained, went to some other, you know, became a rabbi in some other way that's not necessarily as known, um, you don't know what that, what that means. And so I, I think there's actually, I think there's value in that. Uh, and I do know that JTS over the years has certainly evaluated and reevaluated its curriculum to try and do its best to really align that curriculum with what rabbis in the movement need to know. Thank you so much, Leora, for joining us and being so candid about your experiences. I think very often people experience just one side of this process. It's really interesting. And I really appreciate hearing about what it's like to be on the other side and also kind of all of the pieces that need to fit together, because I think that's something that very often communities are just like not aware of, that there's like a whole life. There might be a whole family. There might be so many other pieces that are need to align to make to make a rabbinic job make sense for, for a person. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me. Great to meet you. Have a good rest of your summer and good luck. Thank you so much. And same, same to all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, for our second segment, we are discussing Holocaust comparisons, when they are inbounds, when not, how we feel about them, and recent discussion. This has been uh, triggered in the news recently by, mostly by initially a tweet from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who very plainly said that the detention facilities at the southern border for migrants um, are concentration camps, that they meet that definition. Um, and this was obviously intended to shock the conscience of Americans about the situation on the southern border, but there was also predictably an immediate outcry about that comparison and the use of that term, especially um, saying, hey, the term concentration camps obviously evokes the Holocaust. She also used the phrase never again uh, in her comments, which also people associate with the Holocaust. And 
there's been a lot of back and forth, a lot of people taking offense, a lot of people taking offense at the people taking offense. Um, there's been some more and less thoughtful conversation on the subject. Um, we actually first discussed Holocaust comparisons in politics a few years back um, when it was um, when Holocaust comparisons were being made about Syrian refugees and the United States taking or not taking um, a substantial number of Syrian refugees. But things have changed since that conversation and we thought that given recent events, it was worth revisiting it. So I'm really curious to hear, first of all, what everyone's initial gut reaction was to the re-entry of this Holocaust comparison into the conversation and then a little bit more about how we feel about it after some reflection. I felt really uncomfortable when I first read the tweet. Or, I mean, I think I, I heard about it first and then checked Twitter. Um, I, um, on second, third, fourth reflection, um, my discomfort, I think, Zahava, you mentioned this in some of our pre-show conversations, my discomfort was probably part of the point um, that there is, there's a shock factor to hearing the words concentration camp. Um, and it, I, I actually ended up through this process of trying to understand my feelings and the comparison and whether it's valid or not, I really ended up learning a lot. I am embarrassed to say I did not know that that concentration camps predated the Holocaust. Um, I listened to a few interviews with a historian, Andrea Pitzer, who talks about um, concentration camps in um, in Cuba talks about concentration camps during World War One. Um, that these are these are roundups of civilians um, without trial. So they it, it, that was I I feel like I learned a lot, and I still feel I still feel some sort of discomfort about the ways that the Holocaust can be thrown around loosely. I don't think in this particular situation, the phrase concentration camp makes me as uncomfortable as I initially was um, because it's it's justified, I believe. Um, but Holocaust comparisons still make me uncomfortable because of the scale of the atrocities and the, the ways that it was planned in a way that we've never seen before or again. Um, so that's my, my rambling journey. What about you, Tamar? I was thinking about this last night. I feel like I feel fine about making Holocaust comparisons right now. Like I understand it's not exactly parallel, but we're never going to have something that's exactly parallel. Like that's kind of the whole point <laughs> is that like hopefully we're smart enough to not do like the exact same thing again, but it's possible that we are in a situation that's roughly parallel and it's useful to be reminded of things that happened in the past. I feel like I kind of came down similarly when we discussed this in the past, but I like I I have spent a lot of time in my life being like, I don't want to jump to Holocaust comparisons. But I also feel like we've put kids, this country has put kids in cages. And like, that's not the same as what I think of as what happened in the Holocaust, but it's extremely bad. And I'm not, I'm, 
I'm just not at a point where I feel like being like, no, it's totally different than the Holocaust. Like, yes, it's totally different. It's happening like 80 years later. Not whatever. I'm not doing the math correctly. But like it's happening in a different time, in a different place, under different circumstances. But this is very bad. And I feel okay about being like, we need to ring the alarm bells. And if the alarm bell is Holocaust um, comparisons, then I am okay with it. I particularly feel that way because I I feel like so much of my Jewish education was really focused on this idea of like they came for us and they slaughtered us and no one was there for us. And what would how different would it have been if someone would have been there for us? And I like I I know that there's a lot of people now who feel like um to I've heard people say tikkun olamism as if that's a terrible thing, which is like is tikkun olam the whole point of Judaism I don't think so but is it like a bad thing that you should make into like a pejorative slur also no um so like if people want to kind of condense Judaism down to making the world a better place like I'm not going to come down against that because that makes me seem like ridiculous and this is wrong like this is wrong by any by any measure and if you want to get there because of a kind of Jewish obligation to do better because of what was done to us. I'm fine with it. And, and more than I'm fine with it, like, I do feel like this is what I was trained for. This was what my Jewish education was constantly, you know, beating into me was that like, no one was standing up for us. And we were in this extremely vulnerable situation. And so we need to do that for others. And I think the kind of we need to do that for others in my Jewish education was very often kind of like a footnote, like not the point <laughs> of the conversation in a way. But I feel like it is the point. And I, I mean, I've spoken about this before. Like my grandfather was on the kinder transport and he was saved by effectively a foster family. And I am a foster parent. <laughs> and I like... To me, it is a direct thing. Like someone saved my grandfather's life. That's why I'm alive. I have an obligation to pass that forward. Other people may feel differently. I'm fine with that. Like I don't think everybody has to have the same reaction as I do, but I don't think it's inappropriate to see families being treated the way families are being treated right now and think this is wrong. It's wrong on a level that is reminiscent of World War II. I feel, you know, <laughs> there's a lot that I feel bad about in the world right now, but I'm just not ready to get like up in arms about Holocaust comparisons as like the actual problem right now, I guess is what I'm saying. So Hava, usually like pull me back from this. So tell me, tell me what to think. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you that any of that is wrong from my perspective. I think, look, when I, when I first heard it, it made me uncomfortable for like, several days, meaning like I didn't get around to, I didn't get over my discomfort for a good while. Um, and I think that like, I often want to edit her. Like I often wish uh, that representative Ocasio-Cortez, like, I agree with what you're saying, except for that way that you said it, could you please say it slightly differently? Like I often think that about her. Um, I think that's just what comes. I think of somebody uh, who, whose first statement on a subject is often via social media. Um, 
but basically I had no problem with never again. I kind of wish she hadn't said concentration camps. You know, Mimi, it's, I think, you know, it's interesting that you said that the subsequent conversation was educational for you, which I think it was, but I also think that the specificity of it kind of invites this sort of nitpicking around the wrong things and that when we should be talking about the real problem, suddenly we're all debating the Boer War and like, how did this happen? That wasn't the point either. Because um, it feels inappropriate, but also totally irrelevant in the, like the way that it's inappropriate is totally unimportant. Um, and so it focused the conversation in the wrong place for me, um, but I had no problem with never again, right? Which is a much broader statement of intention about, we're not, we don't wanna do this. And so Adam Serwer in the Atlantic um, had a good piece on this. Um, and one of the piece, one of the bits of it saying um, the argument over whether or not these facilities amount to concentration camps is almost beside the point. The semantic dispute obscures the true conflict over whether the Trump administration's treatment of migrants amounts to a historic crime, right? Which is basically what you were saying, Tamar. And I think his piece is actually great. We'll link it in show notes and I'll recommend that everybody read it. Um, but I think what's interesting about this is that different different entities with Holocaust authority have come out on different sides of this and in different ways. A lot of it happening on Twitter, which is weird. Um, you know, like yeah, the, so weird. the folks that run the historical museums at Auschwitz tweeted like, actually, there were non-extermination concentration camps at Auschwitz. And they're like, see, Auschwitz is saying that this is a concentration camp. Whereas the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum issued a statement by a historian saying, don't ever make Holocaust analogies, which was super weird because of course they make Holocaust analogies. Um, yes. Um, I found that statement very surprising from two perspectives. One, it is a big part of the mission of Holocaust education to get people to make those comparisons, to learn the lessons of history, to apply them, right? And as you said, tomorrow, you're never going to have the exact same thing over again. Um, you know, I think of at the end of the Anne Frank house, when you come through the tour, you come out into a place where videos are playing about different political situations in the world. Now, the rise of, I remember when I was, when I was at the Anne Frank house, there was a video playing about the rise of radical right wing parties in Hungary. And it was specifically inviting you to make that comparison. On the other hand, I was actually surprised that that statement was in, in and of itself as compelling as it was. Um, because what that statement was talking about was that there's been a recent proliferation of Holocaust comparisons. One of the things mentioned was that um, the high school students from Parkland where there was a shooting over a year ago that have been campaigning for better gun control laws have been referred to in some courts, course, uh, in some corners as the Hitler youth and things of that nature. And they're like, this has gotten out of hand and so we might be getting to a situation where like, listen, my thing is obviously appropriate, but your thing is absurd and cheapening of the Holocaust. So it seemed like this historian might have been called upon to adjudicate too many, too many of these disputes recently and went like, I'm throwing up my hands, like out of bounds. And I kind of understand that because Holocaust comparisons for me, but not for thee. Um, it's a little bit difficult to, to draw those lines. I don't actually think that it's hard in this particular circumstance, um, 
but I also don't want every debate over some really important fundamental humanitarian issue to devolve into this conversation. Well, in particular relating to that, I think a lot about how like the pro-life movement loves to talk about like a Holocaust of babies or whatever, which is like, that's different <laughs> in my opinion. And I do not feel comfortable with Holocaust being invoked in that situation. This feels really different to me, but it also is one of the things where it's like, you know, the end of that sentence is to me. Um, and I wonder, it does feel like, okay, well, who gets to decide? But I also did feel like the Holocaust Memorial Museum being like, well, Holocaust analogies are dangerous is like, what's your job then? Like, what what are you here for? Are you just to, to say, like, this thing happened and this specific thing in these specific circumstances should never happen again? Like... That's actually not hard to say because it won't because history moves forward. But if you're if you're willing to say like, oh, actually, like fascism seems to be a thing again. Oh, actually, like anti-Semitism in a specific way seems to be showing its face again. Like that feels useful to me. And saying like Holocaust analogies are just out of bounds feels I don't know. To me, it feels like we're just saying we're not going to learn from this. We're going to like study a specific situation, but not extrapolate from it. And to me, in a way, I guess what I think about that is like, that's not very Jewish. Like, tell, <laughs> like in the Talmud, one of the like most kind of central ways that you think about things is Kalva Homer, which is basically like extrapolate from this, this other thing. And if you can't use that, if you are just saying like, here's the thing, but you may not extrapolate from it, you just have to build a black box around it, then I don't actually know what you can learn from it. And not that I think that like the point of the Holocaust is you have to learn something from it. Like there is no point to the Holocaust. But, but I do feel like taking an event in history and basically saying we cannot extrapolate anything from this is in a, in a way its own dangerous thing to do. Well, I think that one of the things that, and I'm, I'm going to misremember whether the Holocaust museum was spoke specifically about survivors, but that for many survivors, there's this sense of like, no, no, like this, what I am seeing in the news is very different from what I experienced. And this desire to keep their experiences as uniquely horrifying, right? Um, so I wonder what the, how we can honor both that inclination, which I think is valid and fair, and the extrapolation, also honoring um, what never again does mean, um, you know, how, how can we balance those two desires? Yeah, I think that's interesting because there is a clear generational thing happening in this conversation. So Peter Beinart observed um, on Twitter that um, that older Jews seemed much more inclined to take, you know, never again means nothing is ever this bad. Um, and younger Jews are more inclined to say never again is the charge of applying our lessons to prevent this from happening. Um, and I, but, I, you know, think about the the other generational thing that's happening. Think about um, think about non-Jews in Western Europe, right? Where uh, people my parents' age have a sense 
you know, Germans, my parents' age, have a sense of guilt and a sense of responsibility to, to remember the Holocaust, to mourn, to perhaps, um, perhaps they feel like Germany has a responsibility to the state of Israel or to Jewish people in general, whereas younger people who are more remote from the memory of the Holocaust um, are sort of, you know, at least I've been reading news stories suggesting that there's um, there's a fatigue about this sort of national guilt and at the same time kind of a resurgence in resentment um, that's related to rising anti-Semitism. And there's something going on generationally in two directions where like, mm -hmm. what is the upshot of keeping memory strong? Like, are we keeping memory strong for a, for sort of its own sake or for another purpose. Um, I, you know, there, there was a piece in the Washington Post um, on Holocaust Remembrance Day this year um, by a writer named Deanna Paul, who's um, actually related to a family friend of mine. And she wrote about her grandmother, um, Lucy Rosenzweig, who I knew before she passed away, who was a, a Holocaust survivor, a concentration camp survivor. Um, and that piece was something along the lines of, as as survivors, um, as survivors age and die, that the memory of the Holocaust is now more important than ever because there are so many currently applicable situations to which never again should be applied. Um, and then one of the relatives of hers that I know personally, who is more right wing politically, and uh, the, you know also a member of this family was saying like, you can't use my, my, you know, her memory in this way for your own political ends. Like that's not what was going on. I think it's interesting to think about as the Holocaust becomes more historically mo remote, does it become more or less valid and more or less important to make these comparisons? I mean, I think honestly, it may be less valid, but more important. Hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that like, we are likely to get farther away from situations that are like an exact feel like an exact parallel but we also as that happens we're also we have the challenge of figuring out like what do we take from this and I think that like in a way it's probably not useful to think as much about this as it is about like some former atrocity that didn't involve the Jews so it's like if you think of I mean, I, I think of the rounding up of Native Americans enforced, right? Right. So if you think of the ultimate genocide of Native Americans in the United States, it's like, okay, well, what happened there? Was it organized? Sometimes it was organized. Sometimes it was less organized. But what did it result in? It resulted in colonists taking basically effectively all of the land away from these people and also the death of 90% of this population and the taking away of their property. Like there are things you can learn from it. Even if you're willing, even if you're not willing to say like, we shouldn't have done this. This was a bad thing that happened. If you're, even if you're not willing to kind of grant that basic premise, there's still things you can take away from it. And I think that like, for me, what I think, when I see these Holocaust comparisons, I'm less concerned about like literally what is the definition of a concentration camp and more concerned about like what am I as a human being with a moral compass who believes in the precepts of the Torah and believes that I am obligated to leave the world a better place than I found it? What am I supposed to do 
in this situation where I see human beings put in cages, children being put in cages. And like, I do think that there is something for me to extrapolate from what happened in the Shoah that I can take with me as I figure out what I should do now. I wish the answer was very simple. I think it was not simple for American Jews during the Shoah. I don't know. It was like, I don't know what they were supposed to do. I think a lot about like, what was it like to be in that situation then and to have a sense of what was going on, but not really a complete picture. I think that is actually, in a way, that's the most relevant comparison now. We have a loose understanding, but not a complete picture of what this is really like. And we may not have as much power as we would like to think that we have to change things. But I do feel like knowing is important, calling attention is important, and saying that this is wrong and that we're against it does have power. And that kind of getting into back and forth about specific definitions of historical events in the past feels to me evasive. It feels like a way of not dealing with a real thing that is happening to real human beings right now. And that's for me, it's like, you know, I don't, I haven't studied genocide studies. I don't know like exactly what people classify as death camps versus concentration camps or whatever. And I'm not that interested in learning the distinction because I actually don't think it's that relevant for me, for my reaction to this. There are people for whom they need to feel grounded in that kind of historical precedent to move forward. But I just feel like, why? You know, if you're called to speak up against this, because of the Holocaust, good. And if you're called to speak up against this because it's just not okay, that's also fine. Like, sometimes the Holocaust is is a way of ringing a bell inside people that doesn't get wrong very often. And I understand that people are protective of it for that reason, but I also feel like, I, I don't know, at what point do you break the glass? You know, like at what point do we get to say, okay, now is the time. It just feels like it's always going to be a struggle. It's always going to be a conversation about is this appropriate or not? Everybody's going to have to make a judgment call for themselves. You might not feel comfortable with the Holocaust comparison and still be comfortable saying this is wrong. It shouldn't be happening. Fine. Like in that case, then say, I don't like the Holocaust stuff, but it doesn't matter because I still think this isn't okay. Like, I guess my point is like, what is the harm at that point? Like, if you agree that it's not an acceptable behavior, then does it matter that you feel like it's not an appropriate comparison? Or is it just like, well, it's not appropriate comparison, but you're right, it's wrong. I don't know. I'm struggling with a question, which is... um, which is, I hate, I hate that I'm asking this, but does everybody just get to call out the Holocaust and drop Holocaust comparisons? Or does this need to be something that is um, reserved that people closer to the atrocity get to use? I I don't know. I, I think maybe I'm picking up on some of Zahava, what you mentioned about um, if 
if your initial response to things is is via social media and you or yeah social media and you don't sort of get to think slowly about what you're saying um is that the right time to just like drop around holocaust comparisons or should it be used in a more reserved way but here's the thing like everybody's just going to do it like it's already happening yeah. it's been happening for our whole lifetime you know i mean when i was in college people were saying never again is now about sudan so like right. which also was terrible <laughs> like justifiably <laughs> was a real genocide like i don't know it's just one of those things where it's like do i want everybody including like pro-life people to be like i get to decide what the holocaust what an appropriate holocaust comparison is no but it doesn't matter what i think people are just going to do whatever they want so i'm not sure what the utility is in being like actually only jews can say this because it's also it's like personally if ben shapiro says this is off limits i'm going to go tell him where he can think that thought like i i just well (laughs) but one other thing that I'll say on this, Mimi, is that the the I think there might be a difference in Americans invoking this comparison now when the historic horror being committed is by the United States government. Meaning it's you might say, okay, only Jews can invoke right. the Holocaust when they're talking about something happening across the world, perhaps, that they want to rally other people to. Maybe that's something you want to say. But in this circumstance, we're the Germans, right? Like saying, saying like, my government is doing this thing in my name and I'm going to invoke this because I don't want to be a collaborator. I think anyone can say that. Right. And so I think it's it's different. And like I. I remember some debates over whether again, whether never again was appropriate to say about Darfur back. And I was I was annoyed about it then because, like you said, it was an actual genocide. Um, But. And look, I haven't been offended by these Holocaust comparisons. I also haven't been making these Holocaust comparisons, but I also haven't shut down anyone else who's made them. Um, Actually, I. I posted on social media about um, asking people for suggestions about how I could try and uh, try and make my own tiny amelioration of what's happening at the border. Somebody in in the comments on my post said that they felt like a German housewife in 1939, helpless yet despicable. And someone else sent me a private message asking me to ask that person to delete it because it made them so uncomfortable. Ooh, that should not be your job. <laughs> She was like, I don't want to have this argument in public, but could you please? <laughs> and then I privately messaged that person. And then I was like, you know what? Never mind. I didn't ask you to do that. I'm going to go back and tell her that I'm not asking <laughs> you to do this because the underlying events do not have to be exactly the same for the emotional parallel to be real, that an atrocity is being mm-hmm. committed in your name. Um, yes. And so I think that's why it makes sense. Meaning, do you have to be close to the historical atrocity or do you have to be close to the current atrocity? Perhaps if the perhaps if you are neither, then you are not the person to be making that comparison. But I think any American mm-hmm. today is close enough to the current atrocity. But then in that case, does that mean that like when we die, nobody can make Holocaust comparisons? I mean, you know, I I don't feel like I'm setting the ground rules for this, but I, I do feel like I don't feel the need to draw the line here. The the thing that I am picking up though on in people's discomfort 
when they say this isn't the same is like, obviously it is not literally the same. Like no one is reopening the doors of Maidanic specifically. One of the important things here is that there are two different kinds of dehumanization, right? That there's this radical neglect, which is really what we're seeing on the southern border of the United States right now, right? Like disregarding the humanity of people to the extent that they like don't need a place to lie down to sleep, of course. They don't need any soap to keep them clean. They, you know, babies don't need diapers because they're not people in the way that they are being treated. Um, that is a form of dehumanization, but it is not the same form of dehumanization that people think of as the Holocaust dehumanization of an intentional plan of extermination. And it does seem to me that people have this immediate discomfort with saying that anything that is not an intentional plan of extermination necessarily falls in a separate category. Um, and I think that's why like a lot of this, a lot of the columns being written by historians about how actually early stages of the Holocaust resemble this more, this is more like ghettos, this is more like early internment camps, this is more like, all of that may or may, or may not be useful tomorrow in the way that you were talking about before. But I do think that that is the dividing line in a lot of people's minds, even if it goes unarticulated. And I don't think it's crazy even though I, I personally, that's not mm -hmm. the thing for me. Look, I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors who were not in concentration camps. Like that was not the only way to be a Holocaust survivor. Um, and so, in fact, my grandfather right. was in a prison because he was fleeing Poland and crossed a border. He was not allowed to cross and was apprehended by the Czech border guards and imprisoned in Czechoslovakia, right? That was part of his survivor story, right? There are, there are a lot of like genuine non-far-fetched parallels, I think, to the Holocaust in the circumstance, but I do understand that this is bifurcated in some people's minds for that reason. Okay, I think we should leave it there and move on to a cheerier subject, which is endorsements. <laughs> <laughs> Mimi, what do you have to endorse for us? So we have talked in the past about Shlomo Karlbach, his music, who he was as an artist. Um, but I wanted to... Uh, I, I guess I realized in our past conversations that we haven't really talked about, like the following and the community that sprung up based on his teachings and his personality. Um, and so I wanted to endorse a piece by Shaul Magid in Tablet Mag. Um, it's called Consumed by Flames, Remembering Life in Shlomo Karlbach's Israeli Moshav, Now Engulfed in Flames. So in the 80s, um, a group of, it seems like mostly American Jews, um, established a Moshav um, near Modi'in in Israel um, that was loosely for people who were um, really into Karlbach and into his teachings. Um, and unfortunately, that community just recently experienced a fire and almost everything was destroyed. No lives were lost, thank goodness. Um, but this is a really, I thought, interesting, sweet, um, not uh, saccharine, but, but honest reflection on what that community was, what it meant, and what it was starting to look like. Um, so I really want to endorse, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. I thought it was a great piece um, to sort of round out some of my thinking about Karl Bach. Um, and 
the other thing um, that I'm endorsing is something I actually can't totally track down, but it seems like in around the year 2011, the conservative movement's um, Israel program called Nativ, they would send kids to Israel for a gap year. Um, their Israel program released a CD called Nativ's Israel Tish, I think. Um, recordings from this album exist on YouTube and on something called the Zmirot database. I'm obsessed with this album. I can't find it. I've sent some emails. If anybody knows how to get the 2011 Native Israel Tish CD, please hit me up because these these kids have some beautiful voices and the recording is so good. Can I just say that the Zmiro database <laughs> was created by my friend Mendy from college oh who himself gosh. went on Native. <gasps> Maybe Mendy knows. Okay. <laughs> I will see if I can find out for you. Shout out to Mendy Fish. Also, Zmiro database is so good. We will link to that as well. It's so helpful if you're trying to track down a tune that you've heard. You do have to know roughly what it was called in order to, to track down the tune. But I love that website. Thank you, Mendy. It's so good. Agreed. Okay, well, I really can't wait to see if we are able to supply Mimi with the Native 2011 CD. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, while we wait for that to happen, Zahava, do you have any recommendations for us? Yes, yeah, so my recommendation begins with a little story. So I recently uh, used a mikvah, as I do periodically. Um, and... Um, so I have been lucky in my mikvah going life never to have a invasive or rude mikvah lady. I think a lot of people have mikvah attendant experiences that they uh, that they you know don't speak well of. Um, but this one was the most brusque I've ever had. She was, I think, Israeli with like sort of a old school rolling your R's style Israeli accent, and so. She came in. I was the first one to immerse that evening. And she just said, you brush, <laughs> you floss, you comb everywhere. <laughs> and so, um, and I was like, yup. And she's like, okay. And she just sort of like ushered me into the mikvah. Um, so anyway, and it was leading me to reflect on the fact that like, in my experience, there's nothing really less spiritual than like flossing, <laughs> you know using makeup remover wipes like the experience of preparing for mikvah if you do it in like the technically observant way of being very careful to not have any barriers between your body and the water and so you do this very thorough cleaning of yourself it's like not for me the most spiritually meaningful process and there's all of this like everybody you should just be having a beautifully connective experience and i'm like literally <laughs> i just flossed <laughs> like so in that spirit of trying to um in the spirit of trying to reclaim some of the spirituality from that preparation i want to endorse mayim chaim's sheva kava note the seven intentions for mikvah preparation um, so this was created by Mayim Chaim, I believe, but I actually found out about it through a different organization, an Israeli organization that's um, 
the Eden Center, um, founded by Naomi Marmon Grummet, who's trying to um, make the mikvah experience better, more positive, and more useful for um, for the people who use it um, in Israel. And they have also made a Hebrew translation of these seven intentions available for Hebrew speakers. Um, so, what I like is that these are not that these intentions are very connected to the specific physical things that you're doing. So for instance, um, the second intention, Hidur Mitzvah, which means beautifying the commandment. And then it says the unadorned body is beautiful in itself. The step is remove all jewelry as well as makeup, paying special attention to the eyes, which is exactly the kind of thing you would see on a mikvah checklist. Like, did you do this thing? Did you remove all your jewelry and makeup, pay special attention to your eyes, nothing in the creases. So it says remove nail polish on fingers and toes. There is no need for adornment or artifice in the mikvah. There should be no physical barriers between the body and the living waters. Later on, Bitzel Melokim. I am made in the image of God. Remove all clothing, eyeglasses, contact lenses, dental plates, and hearing aids. Each person enters the mikvah as naked as the day of their birth, without rank or status. Simply a human being, gloriously a human being. So those are just a couple of them. But I appreciate the fact that these very, like, check-the-box kind of things that I'm doing just to, like, move my night along, that this is not a spiritual experience decoupled from the thing that I'm doing. It's trying to elevate the actual thing that I'm doing. And I often find the discourse about the mikvah doesn't reckon with well, like, what your actual evening is like when you're trying to get this done. And so I really appreciate that these seven intentions are very much connected to the process. Um, so we will link those in show notes, but uh, thank you to Mayim Chaim for uh, crafting this. I really appreciated it. And it's also available on Ritual Well. Zahava, remind me one day to tell you about the crazy thing that a mikvah lady once said to me, because it's a a golden one okay filing that away <laughs> um okay so i have two recommendations um the first is very short but it's one of those things where it's like every time <laughs> i think about it i laugh so it comes from a facebook page called halacho you've never heard of because they're false <laughs> and <laughs> and it's a thing that somebody shared that i saw and shared because it's so amazing and it is this Legend has it that the Statue of Liberty is a giant golem frozen by the Maharal as she held a Havdalah candle as high as she wanted her <laughs> husband to be tall. <laughs> I don't know why I think that is so hilarious and why I love it so much, but I love it and I wanted to share it with all of our listeners. Um, and also, after I saw that, I, fa- I spent some time on the Halacho you've never heard of because they're false uh, Facebook page, and I'm here to tell you that it's wonderful. I also particularly love this one from February 26th. Since they have fins and scales, mermaids are kosher. However, virtually all poskim dissuade eating the back half because it's impossible to properly remove the gid hanasha. Um, so, you know, okay. this is only going to be amusing to a very specific audience, but I personally love it. Um, so that is endorsement number one. Endorsement number two <laughs> is a children's book by um, a woman named Naomi Danis, who's an editor at Lilith and also just like an outstanding person who I love so much. And the book is called I Hate Everyone. I'm not positive I haven't endorsed this before, to be honest. Um, and it's a children's book. And it is about a child who is experiencing a lot of hate towards 
everyone and feels just like a lot of like this is terrible and I hate everyone but also and I think that like a thing that people say is like don't say hate or like I can't believe you said that you hate me or whatever to kids and it's like uh actually that's a totally normal feeling that children have it's not useful to be like don't say that feeling that you have um and this book actually it's a very short children's book but I feel like it really goes into the fact that like especially as a child you can feel hate and you can feel love and you can go from one to the other really quickly and one of the one of the pages that I love is like I hate you but at the same time I love you (laughs) and it's like can any adult identify with anything more than that like that's just like (laughs) what it is to be (laughs) to be an adult in a way is to like really hate someone and also love them um and there's something Mm. just to me so wonderful about the fact that somebody actually put this in a book because I think particularly for children there is just like a lot of kind of denial of this feeling and I find it to be every time I read this book I just find it to be so powerful and I'm so happy that it exists so I hate everyone by Naomi Dennis she also has another book which is really awesome um but yes sorry go ahead Mimi can I read a line from the New York Times book review of I hate everyone It reads, the way she grasps at and rejects love is universal and timeless. Tolstoy was after this realization, too, and it took him a thousand pages. (laughs) (laughs) High praise. Yeah, that is exactly right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So anyways, highly recommend that book and that Facebook page. All right. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for listening. If you have a minute, it would be so wonderful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you'd like to let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode, we would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You should search for Jewish Public Media to find us or on our website, which is jpmedia.co. You should choose Talking and Show from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you new episodes every month. Sahava, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Tamar. Thank you, Mimi. Talk to you soon. See you next month. <laughs>